please pull out your Bibles. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4, our attention this morning on verses 12 through 20. If you're our guest or if you're new to the Bible, that's great. We are very glad that you're here. You'll have no problem jumping in and following along with us this morning. If you don't have a Bible or don't have an ESV, which is the version that we use, uh, feel free to pull out your mobile device and punch in Galatians 4 ESV. Uh, Or you're welcome at any time. Uh, to head back to our lobby and grab a print copy. We do keep extra Bibles back there for you. Feel free to uh, take advantage of that if you need. But Galatians chapter 4, and while you find your place, I remind you last week we heard from the beginning of Galatians chapter 4 that there is no greater privilege available to humans than to be called sons of God. Amen to that. Amen to that. The Son of God laid down His life to make us sons of God. And that is worth celebrating. We've already been celebrating it this morning. But listen, Galatians isn't simply a celebration of the benefits or the results of the gospel. This letter flows from the pen of a man who is deeply troubled, deeply concerned about the people to whom he is writing. In our passage from last week, he asked them, this was chapter 4, verse 9, how can you, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? In other words, you're sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Why would you go back, seek to go back to the slavery that he liberated you from? What are you doing? In verse 11, we can almost hear the Apostle Paul's heart break. I am afraid, he wrote. This was the end of last week's passage. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. It's like a parent with an adult child who's turned his back on their family and is ruining his life doing, doing whatever. And those parents wondering, why on earth did we put in all these years of effort and care only to watch our son ruin his life? Has my parenting been for nothing? Has my parenting been in vain? That's what Paul's wondering. All this work I've done with you, for you, has it been for nothing? Here in chapter 4, Galatians makes a shift. Okay, and we should feel it makes a shift from Paul's theology of the gospel, and we've had a lot of that. I think it's been really good for all of us. A theology of the gospel, he moves on from his theology of the gospel to a deep personal concern for these people. And this isn't the first mention of his concern, not at all. It's just that now he turns the letter away from beliefs and doctrines to how their abandonment of the gospel affects him personally. And in this passage... He provides an example for all Christians, us included. An example of how we should care. We should care about whether or not our fellow Christians hold fast to the truth of the gospel. That's what he's going to model for us. So please look with me in your Bibles. Galatians chapter 4, verses 12 through 20. I'll read and then pray. Verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. 
You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. The very words of God from the pen of the Apostle Paul for us. Join me in a brief prayer that the Spirit would help us understand. Lord, it's no mistake that we are in this passage on this Sunday, for you oversee all the details of our lives, including which passages of Scripture are preached to us on a given Sunday. You have brought us to this passage because you intend to speak to us. And so, you help us prepare our hearts, Lord. Help us to be eager to receive what you would teach us. Help me to serve my friends effectively. I pray that as I preach, I would be invisible and that my friends would see you in all of your glory and splendor and hear from you and be shaped by you. And we're asking you because this is something only you can do. So speak, comfort, encourage, build up, strengthen. Do all these things for the good of these dear people and for the glory of your great name. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. What role would you like robots to play in your spiritual life? In 2019, an author named Seagal Samuel wrote an article for Vox entitled, Robot Priests Can Bless You, Advise You, and Even Perform Your Funeral. The subtitle reads, AI Religion is Upon Us. Welcome to the Future. The article begins like this. Not making this up. Not clever enough. A new priest named Mindar is holding forth at Kodaiji, a 400-year-old Buddhist temple in Kyoto, Japan. Like other clergy members, this priest can deliver sermons and move around to interface with worshipers. But Mindar comes with some unusual traits. A body made of aluminum and silicone, for starters. Mindar is a robot. The $1 million machine is an attempt to reignite people's passion for their faith in a country where religious affiliation is on the decline. Keep, keep listening here. For now, Mindar is not AI-powered. It just recites the same pre-programmed sermon over and over. Well, that should help. 
but the robot's creators say they plan to give it machine learning capabilities that will enable it to tailor feedback to worshippers' specific spiritual and ethical problems. This robot will never die. It will just keep updating itself and evolving, said Tencho Goto, the, chief, uh, the temple's chief steward. With AI, we hope it will grow in wisdom to help people overcome even the most difficult troubles. He says it's changing Buddhism. That's right. It certainly is. And robots are changing other religions too. In 2017, in honor of the Protestant Reformation's 500th anniversary, don't think this isn't touching Christianity, my friends. In honor of the Protestant Reformation's 500th anniversary, Germany's Protestant church created a robot called Bless You Too. <laughs> it gave pre-programmed blessings to over 10,000 people. That must have been very meaningful. I could go on. It's a great article, but I'm not going to read the whole thing. It goes on to describe other ways that religious organizations are making use of robots for religious purposes. And look, we might scoff at this. I certainly did when I first read it, but upon deeper reflection, think about it. Isn't there a sense in which it would be nice to have a robot as your spiritual guide? A robot pastor, perhaps. Send me right out of a job. None of the messiness that comes with dealing with other humans. There's a lot of messiness dealing with other humans. No judgmentalism, no accountability, just finely tuned, perfectly tailored, algorithm-generated spiritual insight whenever I want it and never when I don't. In a my-truth world, it should be no surprise that some people want a robot religion. It's inevitable when the prevailing belief is that what I believe is nobody else's business. What I believe is up to me and me alone. You have no say in what I believe other than affirming that I can believe whatever I want. That's your only role. This is where Christianity stands out a little bit, okay? Christians are our truth people in a my truth world. We're our truth people in a my truth world. Or better yet, Christians are God's truth people in a my truth world. The gospel isn't private truth for individuals. Okay? It's God's truth for the whole world stewarded by the church. What I believe is your business. And what you believe is my business. <laughs> okay? This is radical stuff, all right? I have a stake in what you believe, and you have a stake in what I believe. What we believe is one another's business. That's why Paul won't let the Galatians believe whatever they want. That's why he's fighting so hard to bring them back to the gospel, pulling out every possible tool in his tool belt to help them. Look, he could have just let them go. Have you considered the possibility? He could have just let these people go. I mean, think, he's got more churches to plant He's got other churches he's planted that he's trying to help. He doesn't have to bother himself with the Galatians, and no one on earth would fault him for leaving them to their own devices. But he doesn't do that. He gets involved. Why? Look, in the big picture, we don't care deeply what other church members or other Christians believe about a host of things. Okay? 
we don't deeply care what you believe about politics or vaccinations or the war in Ukraine or the IRS, it's all tax season, or, or flat earth theories, or whether or not the two planets in the sky the other night were UFOs, or whatever else CNN and Fox News and MSNBC and the Daily Wire and the myriad of other voices on the internet are telling us all to care about. We don't really care about that, but we do care what you believe about the gospel. The matter, the only thing described as the matter of first importance in the Bible, the announcement of what God has done for sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It matters to us whether or not you hold fast to Christ and his gospel. It matters to us whether you understand that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. If you appear to be losing or abandoning or distorting that, we have to act. We have to watch out for you. These are all words from the Bible. We have to watch out for you, admonish you, correct you, warn you, and you have to do the same for us. Paul sees the Galatians losing the gospel, and he springs into action. He is not a spiritual guru robot patting them on the back and comforting them with self-help advice. And nobody should really want that. Paul is a man filled with the Spirit of God, ready to live and die. We got this earlier in Galatians. He is ready to live and die for the Savior who lived and died for him, and he is eager to share the riches of the gospel with whoever will receive him and help them persevere in that gospel until they see their Savior face to face. And listen, we want to be a church filled with people like that. We don't want to be in a church filled with robots or have pastors who are robots because we are God's truth people. That's become our truth. God's truth people in a my truth world. We care about the gospel, living in the good of it ourselves, and we care that you live in the gospel, good of the gospel as well. So let me ask, why? Why should we care about what other Christians do with the gospel? Why does Paul care? Why should we? Three answers from our passage. This is our outline. Give them to you as we go. Why should we care with other, what other Christians do with the gospel? Point number one, because of our personal history. Our personal history. The first place Paul goes to color in the details of why he's so concerned about the Galatians is their own shared history. Look at verse 12 again. Brothers, he says, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. He's talking about the past there. Now, entreat is a strong word that we don't use very often. Other translations use the word beg and plead. This isn't like a suggestion or a good idea. It's the cry of an anguished heart. I'm pleading with you. I'm begging you. Become as I am. Next phrase. Is a call for them to become sons and not slaves. What he's been talking about up to this point. Be a son and enjoy sonship. Don't go back to being a slave. I am a son. Become like me. That's what he's saying. Become as I am. Not a slave to the law and the devil. And then he says, for I also have become as you are. A reference, again, to their personal history, which he's about to unfold. Paul famously wrote in another spot, 1 Corinthians 9, that he became a Jew to, the Jew, to win the Jews, 
and he became as a Gentile to win the Gentiles. He said in this famous passage, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. That's precisely what he's referring to here. I came to you as one under the law to bring you out from under the law. To the, to the, the Greeks, Gentiles in the church, I became like a Greek to help you come to see the Savior of the world. He's reminding them in principle of how he first brought the gospel to them, and then he gives them the details again. Verse 13. You know, he writes, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. That sounds a little strange. Uh, we have little detail about Paul's missionary visit to Galatia, but we get some detail here. The reason he ended up in Galatia was because he fell ill. It's possible, probable, that he didn't even intend to go to Galatia at all. But he fell sick and had to stop there. And since he was there, he did what he did everywhere he went. Preach the gospel. Paul was not afraid to let God's providence guide his ministry. He ends up sick in Galatia, so he makes it a ministry opportunity. And my goodness, oh, you can just park on that for a moment. If, you, if God really is sovereign over all of our affairs, then every problem is really just an opportunity in disguise. There are no problems, only problematunities, okay, <laughs> if God is sovereign. Paul, Paul's visit to Galatians was a problematunity. Okay, you're welcome. Your groans of agony show me that this has really taken root. <laughs> Verse 14. And though my condition was a trial to you, it was hard on you, difficult for you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. I mean, it's a, okay. What, you're mad at him? You would be mad at him because he's sick? What, what's, what's the deal? Well, in the first century, Jews and Gentiles alike believed that severe illnesses were signs of a divine curse. Lepers were throw out of, thrown out of town and ostracized, along with others that had terrible illnesses. Uh, people who were sick were—nobody was in a rush to help people who were grievously ill. And so Paul is saying, look, most people would have steered clear of me, and nobody would have faulted them, but you embraced me. I mean, listen to the language. Listen to how that verse finishes. You received me, he says, as an angel of God, a, a messenger of God. And then he ramps it up a, a second time there. You received me as Christ Jesus himself. Well, whoa. Okay, wait. In their personal history, there was a time when the Galatians hung on his every word as if he were Christ incarnate. That's a pretty deep relationship. So you can see his confusion in verse 15. What then has become of your blessedness? He's not saying they're not blessed. What he's really saying is, what has become of your blessedness of me? Why aren't you blessing me? Why aren't you receiving me the same way that you received me when I first came to you, even though I was weak and sick and broken and you had to serve me? You received me with open arms, but now you're rejecting me and my message. What gives? Why the change in our relationship? That's his question. And then he continues coloring in how deep their relationship had grown. Verse 15, for I testify to you, and this is a little graphic, that if possible, 
you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. This is starting to sound like some kind of weird lover's quarrel. You said you would be with me forever. You said you would die for me. Paul is reminding them of how deep their love for him had been. In first century, your eyes were considered your most valuable asset. Paul is saying, you would have given me, if it would have helped, you would have given me your most valuable physical asset. Do you remember? This is, what, this is what he's asking them to reflect on. Do you remember when we were that close? They have a shared history. Ordained, orchestrated by God, no doubt. Ordained and orchestrated by God, filled with fruitful ministry and deep affection, but now all of that has changed. Why? Because of a change in how they relate to the gospel not about Paul or anything he's done. They have had a change of relationship to the gospel, and that has necessitated a change in the way that they see Paul. Look, when we share God's truth together, it creates a shared history. We share the gospel together that creates a deep bond. It fosters love and self-sacrifice and service, creates a new family that outlasts the family we have merely by blood. Our relationship with one another is founded upon, first and foremost, and kept by our relationship to Christ through the gospel. Our relationships can't hold together in the church without the gospel. If we lose the gospel, we lose each other. You see the stakes. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what's holding this whole thing together. I mean, if the church is an atom, the gospel is the nuclear energy that holds all the subatomic particles together. But look, if that energy is lost, it creates horrible destruction. Just look at the videos of an atomic bomb. That's what Paul's afraid of. If you lose the gospel, there will be a nuclear explosion that will devastate lives and eternities. So he first tries to get their attention by reminding them of how good it was when they shared in the gospel together. And he's hoping, he's hoping that a reminder of the past will help to win them back. Now I have to say, as a, a Christian coming up on 18 years, which there are many people here have been Christians much longer than I have, I, in 18 years, have sadly experienced the, the loss of dear friends who once appeared to share in the gospel but don't anymore. And along with the watching world, thanks a lot, internet, I've watched high and low-profile Christians ruin their churches, ruin their marriages, ruin the reputation of Christ by abandoning the gospel. That's always what's at the root of it. Our biggest problem isn't that we sin against each other. It is a problem that the gospel solves, but not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is whether or not our eyes are fixed on Jesus. That's what holds us together. Relationships built on the gospel get deeper with time, like Paul's did here. But the longer we spend sharing in the gospel together, which I hope is a long time, the deeper our relationships will be and the harder it is 
to lose them. There is a time. This is what Paul's example speaks to us. There's a time when we need to give each other permission, and you should do it now when you're not struggling with the gospel. Give each other permission to plead with one another, to remember the good old days when we shared in the free gift of God's grace together. Because look, we can have more of those days. We can have more of those days if we don't abandon the gospel. The gospel itself, the announcement of what Christ has done and the enjoyment of that announcement, it landing on our hearts as good, that itself is the key to our relationships with one another, to them hanging on and making it to the end. And we got, oh, so we care. We care about whether or not you hold on to the gospel because if you lose it, we lose you and you lose us too. So we care because of our shared history and the enjoyment of the gospel that we've had together in the past. That's point number one. Point number two, why should we care what other Christians do with the gospel? Point number two, because of our, our common enemies. Our common enemies. Verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? In other words, you used to believe my words and receive me as a friend and a brother and a, a leader and a, a counselor, even a, a father, as we're going to find later when he refers to them as my children. But now you're telling me that I'm your enemy, even though I haven't changed what I'm doing or saying. Here's Paul's recap. I preached the gospel to you. You celebrated and received me as though I were Jesus himself. I continue to preach the gospel to you, and you tell me that I'm against you, and I'm trying to rob you and exclude you. I haven't changed. This is the lover's quarrel thing. You're the one that's changed, not me. It's you. What gives? Well, what's the factor that's changed things in Galatia? The false teachers. Judaizers, they're called, from Jerusalem. We caught it actually in the book of Acts. We were going through it. They followed Paul around on his missionary journey and sought to undo the gospel work that he did in towns throughout the Mediterranean world. That's about as much as we know about them. We're going to learn more, a little bit more about them when we get back to Acts after Galatians. But they, they are the factor that has changed things. And Paul wants to point that out and wants to persuade them. The real enemy is here. The real enemy is not me. The real enemy is the false teachers, those who reject God's truth and substitute their own. My, my family and I, we just began watching some reruns of the show Mythbusters with my seven-year-old science-minded son Eli and Adam Savage, one of the hosts, famously says in the show's opening footage, I reject your reality and substitute my own. A great summary of what the enemies of the gospel do here. We reject God's gospel and substitute our own. Those are the real enemies. Paul is saying. Here's how he makes his point. He wants to persuade them. Verse 17. He throws a they in there, kind of out of nowhere. They, he's talking about the false teachers, they make much of you, which really what that means is they eagerly pursue you. You can put that in there. They, they eagerly pursue you, but for no good purpose. Here's where he's calling them out, enemies. They want to win you over. They want your attention. They want to win you over, but their motivations 
are suspicious. Now, what exactly is their terrible, horrible, no good, very bad motivation? Continue in verse 17. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. So when he says shut you out, he's talking about, say, shutting them out from all the benefits of the gospel. They want to shut you out from the good, all the good of the gospel that Paul's been re-explaining to them in Galatians. They want to shut you out from that and shut you out from apostolic ministry, from, from me, Paul, and the other apostles. They want to shut you out so that you will run after them. In other words, they're tantalizing you with their false teaching so that you'll look to them as your spiritual gurus and leaders. You're, they want to be your robot pastors. They don't want you to worship and enjoy God through the gospel. They want you to worship and enjoy them. That's what he's saying. As he explains, verse 18, look, it's always good to be made much of. It's always good to be pursued. That's what he's saying. It's always good to be pursued for a good purpose. It's good to have somebody come after you for a good purpose. That's, that's what I'm saying. It's good that we pursue one another for good purposes, namely to help you hold fast to the, the good news of the gospel. It's always good to be pursued for a good purpose, which is what Paul says he's doing. I'm pursuing you through this letter out of a desire for your good that you would know and enjoy your status as sons of God on account of the saving work of the Son of God. It is good to have somebody pursue us with that as their motivation. But that is not what's motivating the false teachers. And so Paul is saying, we have a common enemy. And it isn't me. It's those who want to distort the gospel of Jesus and rob you. That's what they want to do. They want to rob you of the riches of living in the good of the gospel. And listen, think that the Galatians were having to weed out false teaching. There are literally millions of voices on the internet trying to do the same thing to you and I. There are plenty of people who want your attention. We're in an attention economy, right? They all want your attention. They all want you to feel that what they have to say and the thing they're afraid about, you got to be afraid about too, and you got to pay attention to it. You got to give money to this. That's the whole game. We got to be able to spot it. We have a bunch of common enemies. At times, when we see brother or sister losing their grip on the gospel, and we attempt to help them, which I think this is what's happening here, we attempt to help them, they may misidentify us as an enemy. That's what's happened to Paul. You're misidentifying me as your enemy. And we're at risk of that too. It is always a risk to do the work of teaching and reminding and warning and correcting each other. And again, those are all just words that are in the New Testament about how we're to relate to one another. The risk of being misunderstood and mischaracterized. If you attempt to help one another, especially when it seems like a brother or sister is in a dangerous spot, you will be misunderstood and mischaracterized. It's just a hazard of the job. And when and if that happens, it might be wise to take a page out of Paul's playbook and remind your dear friend who the real enemies are. I'm not your enemy. The real enemies are sin and death and Satan. The real enemies are those for 
for, for whatever reason, try to lead us to believe that the gospel isn't really good news for sinners. The real enemies are those who want us to believe that our eternity is in some way dependent upon what we do and not entirely dependent upon the accomplishments of Jesus Christ for us. Those are the real enemies. And there is no greater service we can do for one another than point one another back towards Christ and the gospel and warn one another of the things that are getting our attention off of him. If I, your pastor, your friend, if I ever appear to be losing my grip on the gospel, please help me. Please help me. Point it out to me. Plead with me. Nobody could do me a greater service than to get my attention back on Christ and on his gospel, even if it comes at your own personal risk. God, I hope and encourage you to say the same that you would say in your heart today. Nobody could do me a greater service, even if it's at risk for the personal risk for them, than to speak to me and warn me and help me get my eyes back on Christ help keep me safe. So many dangers, so many enemies. But God uses us as a means of grace in one another's lives to keep us safe. Why does Paul care? Why do we? Shared history, common enemies, point number three. Why does Paul care? Because of our glorious transformation. Our glorious transformation mouthful paul began this section in verse 12 by affectionately calling the galatians brothers and he includes the women in that word it'll be clear about that he's not just talking to the men in the church this is to everybody in the church starts with brothers and in verse 19 he uses another familial word to express his affection verse 19 my little children. may think that if I called you that, you'd probably slap me. Uh, this could be kind of demeaning in the wrong context, so I don't think we should go around calling each other my little children. Uh, you'd be careful about that. Uh, the point here, even in the midst of some hard words, Paul has not lost his tenderness. Oh, he's speaking hard words. We, if you go back to chapter one, we preached from chapter one, we said Paul's angry. He's angry at what's happening in Galatia, but he has not lost his tenderness. Oh, I hope it's the same for us. I hope that even if we have to share difficult words with each other, we will have tender hearts as we do so. My little children, he writes, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. There's a little more context for the my little children. If you asked Paul, what do you really want for the Galatians? All right, Paul, we've got your whole treatise on justification. We've got all this. What do you really want for the Galatians? He would say, what I really want is for Christ to be formed in them. That's his answer. He wants that so bad for them. He wants it so bad for them that he uses the analogy of a woman in labor. 
He feels like he's having labor pains, and frankly, I don't really know how he thinks he knows what that feels like. And I think most ladies might be a little offended that he appeals to that analogy as a man because a man can't really know what that feels like, of course. But the pain that a woman experiences in labor is a fitting analogy for how he feels towards the Galatian Christians taking on the shape of Jesus Christ. And this is what faith in Christ does. This is why he's contending for faith in Christ. Faith in Christ shapes you into Christ. This is why Paul doesn't worry about a gospel of free grace, churning out people who are lawless and immoral. Because if you believe in Christ, you become like him. You believe in him, you behold him, you become like him. That's how it goes. Faith is transformative. If you see Jesus as, as the great one who laid down his life for you on the cross and bore your sins in his body on the tree, you can't help. If you believe that that is true beyond a shadow of a doubt, you cannot help but begin to emulate and follow him. If you continue to believe the gospel, you will become like the one who laid down his life for you. His very life pulses in you through faith, and you are transformed. And when you're done, excuse me, when he's done, when he's done, what will you look like? You'll look like him. You'll still be you, but you'll be a you that looks like him. That's what Paul wants for his friends in Galatia. And the only way to get it is by faith. And he's perplexed because they're giving up on this. Verse 20. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed about you. Life in Christ is life like Christ. It's freedom. It's joy. It's forgiveness. It's sonship rather than slavery. It's an unearned, everlasting inheritance. But if you give up on the gospel, you lose it all. That's why he's so insistent. That's why he's so confused. That's why he's telling them, you need to reject these false teachers. Grab onto the gospel. Recognize the freedom that you have through Jesus and never let go. And if we want one another, which I hope we do, believe we do, if we want one another to grow and prosper and persevere and become more like our Savior, we must insist that they keep the gospel before them. And keep it as the matter of first importance. Listen, Christ did everything. Christ did everything. Christ did everything for people who deserve nothing so that we could have everything. He did everything for us who deserve nothing so that we could have everything. That's the gospel. And if someone in our church, in our lives, in our small group loses sight of that, it is our responsibility to help them and reason with them and do what we can to persuade them to come back. We cannot sit idly by and hope somebody else steps up and does something about it. 
we got to feel a responsibility to help one another hold fast to the gospel. Listen, of course, we cannot ensure by our actions that somebody stays as a Christian. That's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to pour our hearts out to them, to teach, help, pray, persuade. That we do have a responsibility for. Look, you, you can't believe whatever you want to believe, okay? Sorry to kill your joy. You can't believe whatever you want to believe. I can't believe whatever I want to believe. As members of this church, here's the commitment we make to each other. This is right out of our membership covenant. We welcomed new members last week, praise God, and here's what they committed to along with the rest of us that are members of this church. We will walk together in brotherly love. We will pray for one another, serve one another, care for one another, and right here, watch over one another. That's what Paul is doing. That's what we're saying we got to do. We have to watch over one another. We commit to. We will rejoice with those who rejoice. We will weep with those who weep, bearing one another's burdens with patience and tenderness. We will speak to one another in ways that encourage and build one another up in the faith. That's our commitment. Oh, I want to be in a church with people who've committed to do that for me. I hope you do too. Look, we live in a my truth world, and a my truth world is a dangerous world. A my truth world is alienated from God. A my truth world will not inherit eternal life. But a my truth world is what we live in. It's the air we breathe, the ocean we swim in, but it's all an illusion. There is no my truth. There is only God's truth, his gospel. It's not my gospel that I'm preaching to you this morning. It's not your gospel. Through Christ, it has become our gospel. And it is God's gospel. Look, the Father loves us. The Son laid down his life for us. The Spirit right now is applying all that, has Christ, all that Christ has done for us. He's applying it to us. So we can, with confidence, commit once again to help one another continue in the gospel until Christ is formed in us, which is what he will do if we continue to believe. Join me as I pray that we would. Lord, thank you for having a concern for us. Nobody compelled you to love us. Nobody compelled Jesus to come lay down his life for us. He said, I lay down my life for them. Nobody takes it from me. He took responsibility for our lives and our eternity when he didn't have to. But out of love and a passion for the glory of God's grace, Christ came and he rescued us. 
But now, Lord, in response to that, you call and equip us to watch over, care for, encourage, teach, warn. As a means of grace, you use us to help one another persevere in love and in faith for this great Savior who has done more for us than we could even possibly imagine and understand. And so equip us now, Lord, to care for one another well. Give us courage when we need courage. Give us tenderness when our hearts become hard. And um, Lord, give us clarity and wisdom, the right time to speak, the right words to speak to one another. I pray, Lord, that we would be ready to receive the ministry of other Christians, our dear brothers and sisters, as they help us keep our eyes on this great Savior. May this be a church where we care about what one another believes and help one another hold fast to the gospel. Equip us for that task, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.